All right, left on red. Well, Shelly gave us a great definition of that in the intro. So just a moment of confession, perhaps. Are you more likely to leave someone on red or to be left on red? If you're more likely to leave someone on red, can you raise your hand? My hand's up with you. I'm kind of in the, I'll either respond five minutes after getting your text or five months. And there's not really a whole lot of uh, very, uh, a room in, in the middle there. How about if you're more likely to be left on red? Okay. Um, those who didn't raise your hand, maybe that means you weren't here at the beginning and you just don't know what I'm talking about. But uh, hopefully you'll, uh, you'll pick up on kind of what I'm talking about as we make our way through this, uh, through this morning and, and through the series. This summer, as a church, we don't want to leave the Bible on red. We want to engage and, and to respond well with the Bible. So we have an audacious task. And that is each week we're going to be looking at an entire letter in the New Testament. And the hope is as we do this, that every one of us would be a better Bible reader and engager by the end of the summer than we are right now. That we would learn to respond in new ways. And today we're starting off with the letter that appears first in the New Testament, and it's called Romans. And Romans is the most influential Christian letter that has ever been written in the human in human history. And and and, and probably the most influential what I'm trying to say is it's the most influential letter Christian letter ever written in human history, and it is probably the most influential letter for Western civilization. It's that prolific. It's that influential. But that it is so influential and so well-known does not mean that it's super straightforward. And if you've ever tried to make your way through the book of Romans, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know how hard it can be to navigate your way through it. When I was in my undergrad, I took a class exclusively on Romans. 13 weeks or however long a semester is. Two classes a week, three and a half hours every single week, making our way through the 16 chapters of Romans. But by the end of the semester, after all these hours, all this reading, all these papers, at the very end of the semester, we hadn't made it through chapter three. That's how complex this book can be. There's a pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones. <clears throat> he pastored at Westminster Chapel in London. He did a series on Romans, <clears throat> and it lasted 13 years. 13 years, but don't worry. I'm going to do it in the next half hour. Um, so buckle up, we're going. Um, <laughs> yeah, joking aside, before we make our way through the letter, there's just two things I want to quickly touch on. One is the person who wrote it, and two, who were the Romans? So the first thing, who wrote this letter? Well, it's already been alluded to a person that we know as the Apostle Paul wrote it. Paul's the artist formerly known as Saul. He was born in Tarsus and um, he received this elite education under Gamaliel. He was a Roman citizen. He was trained as a Pharisee. He had all the social capital one could possibly hope for in the Roman Empire. He was at the top as an adult, Paul, um, as a devout Jew, was trying to end this Jesus movement, <clears throat> trying to, to quash it and say, you guys are distorting what it means to worship God. So he was on the road trying to destroy this movement when on that road, Jesus blindsided him. He met Jesus and that changed everything. 
And he dedicated the rest of his life to planting churches and beginning faith communities. And he started to write those communities and those leaders letters. And those letters have formed so much of our New Testament. It's those letters that we're looking at this summer. The second thing is who were the Romans? What was it like to be in the Roman Empire? Every single commentary I have ever read on Romans begins by explaining the Roman Empire. Everyone. Because Paul's world was different than our world. We can't just read Romans and think it's the exact same cultural dynamics of the world we live in when that was so long ago. And the the most important thing to know about the Roman Empire, above and beyond everything else, is that it was absolutely oriented in every way around honor and shame. Everything boiled down to honor and shame. And this quest for honor, this quest for glory, it was all a zero-sum game, which meant there was only so much to go around. So a helpful way of thinking, that, uh, thinking about this is every single person was on a ranking scoreboard. Everyone. And everyone was trying to climb the ladder. But for you to go up one position meant someone else was going down. So it was cutthroat in its competition. It would be like a streaming service vying for your money each month. And for you to choose this one meant that you had to unsubscribe. It was so, it was like Roman society, everyone's on a ladder. You knew where you were and you were just trying to climb up. And there was a playbook on how to do it, the cursus honorum. And like you, everyone was trying to do this. So trying to just stomp on the people around them. So to an empire, to a civilization, to a society, absolutely immersed in a scoreboard ranking system, Paul wrote a letter called Romans. Now, before I make my way and we start in the book of Romans, I just want to say this. If you have a favorite part of the book of Romans and you're like, finally, we're going to talk about it. I just want to say you might be disappointed this morning, mostly because we don't have 13 years, okay, uh, this morning. Um, And so uh, far more will be missed than talked about. So here's my challenge to each and every one of you this week. Read the book of Romans. Hopefully, by the end of our time together this morning, you will read it better. So read the book of Romans this week by yourself, with a loved one, with a friend, with a colleague. But read the book. For today, and the impossible task of trying to explain all of Romans, I want to break it up into three chunks, three sections. Life in Christ, life in the Spirit, and life together. Life in Christ, life in the Spirit, life together. And when we talk about life in Christ, I want to look at Romans 1, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. These two verses are the thesis statement of Romans, which means you cannot read Romans right or Romans well without understanding these two verses. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith 
from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This is the only letter that Paul writes that has a pretty clear thesis statement. So thank you, Paul, for helping us learn to read this letter better. But Paul says in his thesis statement, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And for Paul, immersed in an honor and shame society, Paul saying, I'm not ashamed, is an utterly provocative statement. You know, for us moderns, when we hear shame, we often think of emotion or we think of feeling like what we talked about a few weeks ago where we want to shrink back and make ourselves small, right? Pastor Ken Chigmatz, we talk about, or make ourselves really big. But in Paul's world, when he says, I'm not ashamed, that's not so much a feeling or an emotion as much as it is a, 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 a statement on status and position. And Paul is saying, when Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed, It's like he's looking the Romans in the face and saying, I don't play by the rules of the empire anymore. I don't play by that scoreboard ranking. I don't play by those rules. And what changed everything for him was experiencing the gospel, was experiencing what he calls the gospel of God. And I want to unpack this for a moment, this idea of the gospel, because it's important to know what that word means. If this is the lens by which we read the entire letter, we have to narrow it down and just like, what does this idea of the gospel mean? As a word, it simply means good news. It's the declaration of good news. But what is the good news? So here's a totally true story that I think will help us come to understand what the gospel means. This happened a few years ago here to me. Uh, After the service, I was walking out on Main Street, talking to people like a lot of us do after the service. And and someone's like, hey, Kyle, um, can you go look out the north doors? Something's happening. It's a little weird. And I'm like, well, that's okay. Um, Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go look. So I start walking. And and as you walk to the north doors, you'll know like there's like like the glass wall. And I look out the glass wall and I just see someone, sorry, camera people and lights, and pretend this is a tree and he's just like hiding in the tree. And I'm like, what is going on? There's this guy hiding in the trees, just looking at people. I'm like, oh man. So I walk out and I'm like, hello. And this person comes out from behind the tree and he's holding a camera and a microphone with a, a camera mounted on his chest. I'm like, hello. And he just comes at me and he's like, what is the gospel? And I'm like, uh, hey, my name's Kyle. <laughs> he doesn't respond. He's just like, what's the gospel? And I'm just like looking around. I'm like, what's happening? Am I being punked right now? And he's like, what's the gospel? And I'm like, man, I just like, I'd love to know your story. Like, what are you doing? What's going on here? And he's like, the gospel doesn't change based on my story. And I'm like, well, I know that, but I would answer the question differently to my child as I would to an adult or as to a person from a, you know, a different religious background. And if I knew your story, I might be able to answer it differently. And he's like, I guess you don't know. And he starts walking away. Well, I'm like a smidge competitive. And I'm like, oh no, 
You're not scoffing at me. I'm like, fine, I'll answer your question. Come back. And uh, I'm like, here's what I know you want me to say right now. You want me to say to you that God created the world and everything was good. And when he created humanity, everything was good. Our heart, soul, body, we were aligned. Our relationships were flourishing. Our interactions with the world was good. Everything was good. But then Adam and Eve had their desires warped and they longed for something else. They thought they knew better. And so they ate the fruit, what God said not to. And in that moment, sin entered the human story. And we are now all living as victims of that moment, but also perpetuators of that moment. And sin has impacted and influenced every part of our human existence. And there is nothing we can do on our own to break its power. There is nothing we can do to bring salvation to ourselves But thanks be to God who loved us so much he sent his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. And that Jesus who is Lord is redeeming and reconciling all things. Like, is that what you wanted? And he's like, yeah, man, nice. And he like goes to like dap me up. And I'm like, (laughs) turns out he runs a YouTube channel where he's trying to catch Christians that they don't know what they're talking about. And he's like, this church is okay with me, man. This church is okay. (laughs) He's like, you should have seen the church last week. (laughs) It's a true story. I said, okay, now that I answered your question the way you wanted me to, I want to say something back. I think the gospel is both a lot more than that and a lot more simple than that. And I proceeded to have a really long conversation with him about this. Richard B. Hayes, this New Testament scholar, has this great line when he talks about the gospel, and he says, all of us need a conversion of the imagination when it comes to think about the gospel. Because the gospel is so much bigger than anything we could begin to comprehend, but it is also so much more simple. And the way that I explained the gospel just a few moments before Oftentimes that'll be described as like the Romans road or something along those lines. But I said, I said to this guy, I'm like, the gospel's not just some road to be memorized, but a life to be lived. It's not just some four-step thing. The gospel is the only story in the world that is comprehensive enough to contain the entire human existence. It's not just something to memorize. It is God restoring all things. And it's like, when I, when I walked through that definition, or when I said that to him, I said, you notice that like part of that declaration that I said is dependent on us responding. And I'm like, the gospel is so much bigger than one individual person responding because the gospel is the gospel, whether we respond or not. So at the end of the day, the gospel is the declaration that Jesus, Jesus is Lord. 
It can be that simple. Jesus is Lord and he's restoring and reconciling all things through his life, through his body. Which then puts the onus on us. What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do about that? Jesus is risen and reigning and Lord. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that reality. And then Paul makes this statement in his thesis and he says, the gospel is the very power of God. The very power of God at work in this world. And when he says power, he uses the word, some of you know it, dunamis, which is where we get dynamite from. And so Paul is, is saying, the gospel is the dynamite power of God at work in this world. And it's offering everyone salvation to all people. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the dynamite power of God, he's saying, I'm also not afraid of the world around me, therefore. I'm not afraid, I'm not ashamed of what's going on around me. He's saying to the church, I am not afraid that the gospel of God will be beat by the powers of Rome. I'm not afraid of what someone might do to me because of the gospel, because I know the dynamite power of Jesus. I'm not afraid of what people may do to me, what they may want to throw at me. I'm not afraid of giving it all up for Jesus because I have met the dynamite power of God at work and it has changed everything for me. I'm not afraid or ashamed of anything in this world because the gospel is the power of God offering salvation to everyone who may believe. I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed because I know Jesus. And from this powerful statement, Paul would spend the next several chapters of his letter unpacking what this means, showing how this has ethical implications, showing how this has uh, uh, implications on how we orient our lives as a community, showing how the power of sin has been decisively broken and creating a new form of being human. And when you read through the rest of the letter through this lens of I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God at work offering salvation to all who believe in the righteousness of God has been revealed. When you read through all of Romans with that lens and you see how everything fits into the, the, the gospel of Jesus is Lord and restoring all things. There's, um, if, if you're interested in seeing how this part of the letter can be how it flows. There's a great video on YouTube. You can look at it. I, I, I recommend looking it up. If you just type Bible Project Romans, it's worth it. There's actually two videos. It's brilliant. It's great. I had lots of that stuff in here. I'm like, I just don't have time. So there's some homework, okay? Read the book of Romans, but watch that video. It'll help you read it really well. Bible Project Romans. Um, and you'll see how Paul forms this letter to the church showing how the gospel of God impacts all parts of life. Which takes us to the second thing I want to look at today, which is life in the spirit together. Romans 8 has one of the most beautiful demonstrations of what life in the spirit looks like. 
It's so profoundly beautiful. It's so utterly comprehensive and it's such a trustworthy promise. And so I want us to look at that. But when, maybe you know this, when Romans was written by Paul, it was delivered to the church. And so the churches, there's probably about five house churches in Rome, they would have gathered. And it's not like they just had like a printer or everyone got like an email copy of the letter and they're like, all right, let's look at this together. Like that's not what would have happened. What would have happened is someone would have gone to Paul, he would have trained them on the letter. That person probably would have memorized it. That person would have come up front in front of the church and performed the letter for everyone. The very first time Romans was given to a church in, the, in human history, it would have just been performed out loud. Lots of people think Phoebe did it. We don't know for sure, but it would have been read aloud to a church congregation. And so rather than me reading and walking through the life in the spirit, I want us to embody the experience of what those first Romans would have had. And I just want to share with you the words and for you to just listen. And maybe you could say, Lord, what is it that you want to say to me through your word today? What do you want to speak to my heart? And whatever your world may include right now, good, bad, complex, straightforward. I invite you to listen to these words, the very words of God, as the first recipients of this and as most Christians through human history have received them, which is just through someone reading them aloud. Life in the Spirit says this. In the same way, church, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now we know we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us, prays for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. For those who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So what should we say today then in response to these things? If God is for you, who can be against you, church? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he, also, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things that we need for life and godliness? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. 
Who can separate you from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am utterly convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. He helps us in our weakness. And life in the spirit, what I just described, is as solid as the dynamite power of God's gospel. Our lives can be as secure and grounded as the very life of God. Which brings us to the third part of Romans. What does this life together look like? Perhaps the most stunning glimpse of life together in the whole of the Bible is found at the very end of Romans in Romans chapter 16. Perhaps the least preached passage in the most preached letter, Romans 16. Romans 16 is simply just a collection of greetings from Paul to the church. You know, he says, To Phoebe I commend her, to Prissa and Aquila, Andronicus and Junia, Mary, Herodian, Narcissus. Persis, Rufus, Julia, all these names are just being thrown out in Romans 16. There's Roman names. There's Greek names. There's Jewish names. There's male names. There's female names. There's high status names. There's low status names. There's persona, like non-status names as in slaves. They weren't even considered humans. All these names are being thrown in as equal. And Paul saying, I just want to greet the church. I want to say hi, but there's this amazing verse. It's verse 23, and it's a verse that we likely so easily miss, but it might have been the most surprising verse in the whole letter to a Roman audience. Romans 16, verse 23, it says this, I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. What that means is Paul used to scribe. So Paul spoke this out, and we now know Tertius, wrote down this letter. Tertius meant third, which tells us he was a slave. He wasn't even considered a person. He wasn't even given a name. He was just given a number. And at one point in this process, Paul stops dictating and he looks to Tertius and he's like, what do you want to say, brother? You want to to share anything with your church family? And he says, I greet you in the Lord. And then he says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus sends you their greetings. All right, they're in Gaius's house. 
They're with Erastus, who is the city director of public works in the most influential city on the planet at the time. And then he says, and our brother Quartus, which means four. So it's probably his younger brother, but then it's also the highest office, status, saying our brother's Quartus too. All equal, all together, all given voice. As humans, every one of us is looking for one thing, and that's to be loved and to love. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, he says, for every person, the greatest drama of their life is looking for someone who is looking for them. And every person in this room at some point has had someone look at you and hold you and name you. Maybe it was Lisa. Maybe it was Shelly. Maybe it was Sajad. All different names. But I also know at some point in life, someone may have looked at you and given you a different name. Maybe useless, unwanted, not needed. And where someone once was looking at you and naming you, perhaps life has made it feel like no one's looking at you anymore. And maybe it feels like the names that have been given to you are more commodity or third best option. But for those who are in Christ Jesus and a part of his community, we are seen, we are known, and we are loved. And the church is designed and meant to embody this together. All equal, all cared for. That's what life together is meant to be. So then how do we respond? How do we not leave this idea of life in Christ, life in the spirit, life together? How do we not just like hear that and be like, oh, okay, cool, take. How do we respond? You know, for some of us today, your response has to do with the power of God's gospel. N.T. Wright summarized the entire opening of Romans chapter one by saying it is a scathing critique providing a parody of the power of the world. Scathing critique of the way the world operates. And then he sums it up famously by saying this, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar isn't. If Jesus is Lord, that means Caesar isn't. Now we don't have literal Caesars demanding our allegiance, but each of us has our own version of a Caesar that's demanding our attention. So if I can just riff on that for a moment. Church, if Jesus is Lord of your life, that means the scoreboard ranking of society isn't. If Jesus is Lord of your life, then that means money isn't. If Jesus is Lord of your life, that means work 
isn't. If Jesus is Lord of your life, that means kids aren't. That means this city isn't. That means any kind of status isn't. If Jesus is Lord of your life, that means anything that may take up the mental bandwidth of your mind isn't Lord. And much like the Romans, there are all kinds of opportunities for us to shirk back, to capitulate to culture, to deny the dynamite presence and the salvation that God offers to all. But for each and every one of us, there's two options. We can either be ashamed of the gospel or we can embrace the shame of the gospel. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. For some of us responding today, it's not so much what does the gospel mean or not mean. For some of us responding, it's about life with the Spirit. And you need to know and you need to hear God saying to you today that nothing can separate you from his love. Nothing. I heard about a study recently where some doctors were taking people who were in love and putting them in an MRI machine to see what would happen. They put them in the MRI machine and, uh, and they would just start to ask questions and they would start to talk and... Uh, <clears throat> At a certain point, the doctors would start to talk about the person the individual in the MRI machine was in love with. So this person's laying there answering all these questions, and then the moment the doctor mentioned the name of that person's loved one, the person in the MRI machine, the brain just lit up. Just went, woo, fireworks. And some of you today, you need to know that if Jesus were put in an MRI machine and your name was spoken, his brain would light up because he loves you and he cares about you and he's aware of your life. He's aware of your story. He knows where you've been. He knows where you're going. And I, and, and I, I think Jesus is just trying to say through Romans chapter eight, there is nothing you have ever done in your life that will stop my brain from lighting up when your name is spoken. Nothing. No choice you've made. No choice someone else has made. Nothing you have ever done is stopping my brain from lighting up at the mention of your name. Because I love you. I care about you. You may feel like it's been a hundred thousand kilometers away on the journey, but I've been following and it's just, just turn, I'm here. My brain lights up at the thought of you. I just want to pour my love into your heart. You need, you need to know how much God loves you. In Romans, it says that he's given his spirit to pour his love into our hearts. And I think God wants to pour his love into some hearts here today. Because he loves you. And for some here today, you know that God loves you. You've experienced that. You experienced that reality. But 
the response to not lead Romans on red is to figure out what does life together here mean and look like for you? Perhaps the most provocative thing the the earliest Christians did was form a multi-ethnic community where the unseen were seen, where the unknown were known, where the unnamed were given equal footing and given voice. Did you know the first ever united, equal, multi-ethnic enterprise on planet Earth was the church? And it's meant to be that still for each of us. Is it any wonder that early church grew exponentially and especially amongst the most vulnerable? So when we gather here, this isn't just a routine. It's like, oh, we'll come and then we'll go. What's next? This isn't just a hobby. This is us showing up to glorify the matchless majesty of Jesus, to honor him with our lives, to orient our lives around him, to respond. But it is also us seeing and being seen, loving and being loved, caring for each other. It's life or death. And we need to do this together. Life in Christ, life in the spirit, life together. What is it for you? What is God speaking to you about today? I want to end our time fittingly with the very last sentence sent to the first Romans. And as I do that, I pray that in the next few moments, in the next few days, as we read through Romans, that we learn to respond and not leave this letter on read. But here is how Paul, about 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus, ended his letter to the Romans. He said, to him who is able to establish you through the gospel so that every person may come to the obedience by faith, To the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus. Amen.